0: Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast. We have a special guest with us today, but we're not going to tell you who it is yet. If you don't already know, we're going to have to just wait, and uh, we're going to go through our normal process, and he'll reveal himself.
1: They just looked at the title of the podcast. They probably got a pretty good
0: idea. We don't know what we're going to name it yet. It might be named something else. Who knows? It might be a disguise. Uh, Okay, so how are you guys doing?
2: I'm good. I'm doing good. Shalom. I'm well.
0: Shalom. (laughs) Well, as always, uh, we have some thinklings business to tend to.
2: Let's
1: do some books and business.
0: Let's talk about some books. I have a book (laughs) with me today. Uh, It's actually, I was talking to our guests before we hit record, And I think I actually purchased this book before I was a Christian just because the title was so interesting to me. And it's called The Spiritual Brain, A Neuroscientist's Case for the Existence of the Soul. Mm. And uh, what he starts off doing is he pretty much rips to shreds the idea of materialism, that there's nothing out there beyond the material. And then he, uh, the, the two authors, Mario Beauregard and Denise O'Leary, they set out to scientifically prove the existence of a soul, and they actually think that they've done it. Uh, I won't give away uh, mo- most, m- most of what happens in the book, but it's really interesting, and especially from just a worldview standpoint, trying to think through uh, the ramifications of saying that there isn't a soul. And obviously, as Christians, we would. We, that is kind of necessary, <laughs> uh, for our eternal existence. So uh, very interesting book. Uh, I read it, like I said, probably like 12 years ago. And I'm not all the way back through it again, but it's very interesting. And so if you're looking for something just that's, I don't, I don't really know how to judge it yet, but.
2: That sounds a really interesting. Part of what we talk about uh, in Apologetics is Sam Harris. And Sam Harris says there's nothing but physical. And it's those problems. Those are the things he's running into. So yeah.
0: that's fascinating. Yeah. So I, I might come back to this uh in a month or so and we might have a full episode on it. But uh yeah, reading I read first two chapters and it just it's very, very appealing. So um yeah, you might get a copy and it might intrigue you. So
2: that sounds fascinating. Yeah. Uh well I started the a book called Jesus the Great Philosopher by Jonathan Pennington. Oh, that's a good book. It is so good. I love this book. I, I, and I'm, you gotta understand, like when we say we like books, we are not always meaning we agree with everything in the book. But this book is so good. I mean, philosophy of education. He talks about emotions. Um, the probably the this is the little tidbit I'll share with you in his second. What he's let me let me step back. He, when he calls Jesus a philosopher, he's referring to a philosopher in the days of like the Greeks. And so a philosopher today is someone who just bats around ideas and has intellectual knowledge, but it doesn't necessarily shape how they live always. But back then what a philosopher did was he offered a full holistic philosophy of how to live the good life. And so what he's going to argue in this book on the broad sense is that Jesus is actually the best, that type of philosopher there's ever been. And so he's, He's going to deal with Plato and Aristotle and lots and lots and lots of uh, uh, thinkers and writers throughout time, but he's got some really good stuff in this book. So I really enjoyed One thing he said here is he was pointing out the way Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all those uh, would run their schools or their education. And so he, he says this, um, they would gather learners around them and become formalized as schools where young men and women gathered in cities to live with the philosopher or the other disciples. They intentionally exercise the body and the mind, shaping habits and the heart. From the time of Plato on, it was understood that philosophy, quote, could be carried out, but only by means of community of life and of dialogue between masters and disciples within the framework of a school. He goes on to explain that school in that day wasn't just show up at a class, learn some things and leave. It was actually a live with the person and grow and it just dawned on me that I think that's actually part of what we've got going at our school. I'm very thankful for that. It's discipleship. Yeah, it is. It, it, and they wouldn't use those words, and it wouldn't be exactly like we would describe discipleship, yeah. but it's a lot better of an answer than just take mm-hmm. a test and there, know you've learned. Yeah. So the whole book is, I think, really fascinating. There's some stuff, of course, you're not going to agree with it. I'm not going to rank it yet. I'm almost done. I'm actually probably going to do an episode on it, and we can maybe talk about it. But it's, I enjoy it so far.
1: Michael Wilkins has a book on discipleship, biblical theology and discipleship. I think, and he compares Jesus's philosophy of education, discipleship, with like Plato and Aristotle. And is that the yeah. same same idea? Yeah, and Benning was just he mm-hmm. was pointing out how there's a lot of overlap.
2: Yeah, and I and it's anyways, it's intriguing. I, yeah. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Cool. Um, I think what I took, I remember the most from that book is that all of the ancient ancient um iconography of Jesus has him in a philosopher's yes. robe, mm-hmm. which is something that I hadn't thought about, but in the ancient world, that was his main characteristic. We don't view Jesus that way as a philosopher. We see him as God or teacher, man, teacher. Yeah. but they viewed him as philosopher.
2: They even had that little bit about Moses on that one mural. They had Moses in a philosopher's garb and everyone's like, why is Moses in it? But it's, again, he's mm-hmm. presenting a vision of how to live Right. A holistic life.
1: Which is wisdom and, yeah. The beautiful. Okay, so the book I'm uh, reading right now, in just starting really, is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. I'm only about 50 to 100 pages into this, but um, it's been really interesting. It's helped me understand the world in which I live. He uses a, a phrase as kind of like a starting point, a phrase that really offends um a lot of Christians, um, the phrase is, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. So basically the transgender, um, transgender line. And so how can that line, that sentence make any sense to any kind of a worldview? Well, he kind of explains how that is the case, which I thought was kind of interesting. I'm just going to share a quick little bit on it here. He has two... um, Two, uh, uh, ways to view the world. Um, the two words are mimesis and poiesis, hmm. mimesis and poiesis. I didn't know what those were, but, um, I, am going to just read him here and he'll kind of explain what, what,
0: no, go ahead. It's a Hebrew pro I know. I'm, I'm like, Greek. Like,
1: come on. well, it's Greek. I recognize that. o to do mimesis. It's Greek to you. Mimesis. Okay. Oh. To mimic, blah, two blah, blah. Two points,
2: Charlie. Did you catch? all oh, he did.
1: <laughs> a, mimetic, a mimetic view regards the world as having a given order and a given meaning. Okay. The world has a given order and a given meaning and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. So in other words, God created the world. He created it a certain way. i.e., He created some people boys and some people girls. Okay. And humans, all right, they... Uh, have to figure that out and conform themselves to it. Poiesis, by way of contrast, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. Okay, so there's raw material. Well, what is the raw material? Boy and girl. And what is that raw material? You can do whatever you want with it. And then he gave several illustrations of how we've actually done that very thing in our modern society with like scientific discoveries and conquering time and space through technology from the airplane to the cell phone to the, you know, satellite, and then even conquering, um, uh, struggles in society that have to do with like food irrigation and how, uh, so many areas of our society, it's like the world is raw material. Well, that, that sense, that idea that line of thinking is basically just being extended to the human body, hmm. and that the body is raw material. It's boy or girl, but you can conquer it, make it conform it to whatever you want it to be. So that's how you can have somebody say, "I am a boy in a girl's body, or a girl in a boy's body, or whatever the phrase was that he had there."
2: Does he mention existentialism and essentialism? I at haven't all? gotten to any okay. of that yet. Because no, that's just he might. That he interacts.
1: He interacts with some philosophers of which I am not familiar with. Okay. Philip Reif, Uh This is one R I E F F, and these guys were writing back in like the 80s and 90s, and so the ex- extension of their thinking though is just now coming forth. Um,
2: and there were some other ones too. I can't remember now though. Hmm. So. That's interesting, really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's um, a really good book, I think, to help you understand what the world is going through right now, and then he'll also, I assume, provide a Christian response.
2: Seems like another book uh, we had all read where some people were trying to take humanity and overcome it. Huh,
1: it's almost like a C.S. Lewis Oh, oh, whatever. What is a man, how do we define a man, and what makes a man a man? To be able to,
3: anyway... Okay, dun,
0: dun, Mr. Dun. Guest, well, do you have a book?
3: A, I do have a book, yeah. The book that I've been reading lately is The Case for Classical Christian Education Ooh. by Douglas Wilson, and actually yes. it's very fitting with what both Andy was talking about a moment ago and what Tim was just talking about. There's a lot of things that I could discuss about the book. Let me give you a quick overview of just the structure. The first few chapters are a little bit dated uh, because it was written in, or published in 2003, and the first couple of chapters, he's setting up the shortcomings of public education. And so some of the statistics and things that he cites in those chapters, I'm sure, are, huh. are outdated. But actually, nonetheless, the principle still holds. The, it just
1: went out of print. Did it? Went it, out of print?
3: Okay. Yeah, I ordered it again from Crossway and it's not
1: available anywhere. Oh, I wonder if somebody's updating it. That would be nice if somebody if he updates it or something, but yeah, I was yeah.
3: surprised to see it go out of print. And I, I don't think, um, I think, those first couple chapters aren't. You know, the, the book is worth the price if you can find it, even without those first couple of chapters. But then he goes into, you know, actually making the case for for classical education. What is it? What is it not? Uh, even within Christian classical education, what are some of the differences in the way people are practicing it? And then the final chapters get to the more practical nuts and bolts of actually starting a classical school, dealing with, you know, boardmanship and dress code and, and athletics in a classical school and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, to get back to what Tim was talking about about mimesis and poesis. Oh. Um yeah, just the importance of imitation. So mimesis is imitation. Mm. And most people in kind of a contemporary secular educational philosophy think of imitation a lot of times as something negative because it squelches individuality. It's like fake. Right. Yeah. Whereas a kind of a biblical approach to education sees the importance of imitating Christ, imitating Christ, (laughs) yes, but imitating goodness (laughs) as well, um, and going on from there. And so, even like in a in the day to day function of a school, how do you teach kids to be good writers? Well, you have them imitate excellent Mm -hmm. writers, right? And in a secular school, that's not at all what you would ask students to. You would not ask them to keep a commonplace book and write down passages uh, from excellent authors and try to imitate that style. When in reality, that's how. You know, some of our most brilliant Americans and others in history learned to write. Ben Franklin talks about that in his autobiography. Hmm. Copying passages, then trying to write them himself, try to improve on them uh, himself. And that's how he kind of learned how to write well. So anyway, there's other things to say, but I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, typical Douglas Wilson. Funny. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, not pulling any punches, being blunt when needed. And it'll ruffle some feathers, I'm sure. But.
2: Yeah,
1: I think that's been
3: on my to-read list for a long
1: time and I have not. It's on jumped. my
2: also to-read list.
1: It's um I bought a copy a long time ago. I think what's, my wife read some of it, but
0: what's the title again?
3: The Case for Classical Christian Education.
0: Okay. Yeah, cuz I have I have a Wilson book Rediscovering the Lost Tools of Learning which is directly interacting with the Sayers book we talked about previously and I haven't cracked it yet. So i have to maybe read that Wilson before I get to the other Wilson. But, uh, okay, so our guest that's here, we, we should probably
1: introduce you. Oh, yeah, we didn't tell everybody what his name was. So he what, just did what, a bunch of talking.
0: No, yeah. that's good, though. I like that. I like the mysteriousness. It's like yes. a
1: delayed identification. <laughs> almost yeah. like, you know. Well, if they don't know already, they're really interested
0: sense. in wanting to find out now. So, who are you?
3: I am Dr. Boyd, and my fame reaches to the heavens. <laughs> See, these guys just think I'm being arrogant, but that's actually a line from the Odyssey. When, <laughs>
0: oh.
3: when Odysseus reveals himself to the Phaeacians, finally.
0: Okay, well, on I, that note... I love note, that you just
2: imitated him, too. But. On that <laughs> note,
0: we want to have a conversation about classical Greek literature. Okay, and there's some really famous ones. There is a famous one that Dr. Boyd just mentioned, the Odyssey.
3: Let me interrupt for a second. I introduced
2: myself as Dr. Boyd, but I was just being funny about that. <laughs> that it's, it's Josh, don't worry. <laughs> He's also one of the saltiest professors I know at Faith. He, we, you should actually, see our text stream.
0: Yeah, okay, so let's, let's actually Charlie's go back. Charlie's a professor
2: he, now, so I think... He, Ooh.
0: Oh. <laughs> That's right. I'm not salty, I'm sweet. Okay, so, <laughs> so you actually mentioned in the classical education uh, motif there, you mentioned a dress code. And I've actually heard that you don't dress casually when the school has casual days. Are you okay telling us why on the podcast? Or is that That's something? That He's turning just a funny color up? in his head. It just throws him like. <laughs> Andy said, hey, "I should."
1: I don't. I don't oh, usually
3: dress casual either on casual days.
1: So. Is
0: there? Is there a method to the madness no, there? He, you did or dress casual once. Well, I
3: think part of the reason many people dress casually is it's comfortable. But I actually am not uncomfortable in the dress clothes that I wear. Boom. Same here. Yeah. In, I, in fact, you'll notice, like all Tim right that now. we're recording at eight o'clock p.m. and I'm still in my dress code or uh, in my dress clothes. And that's not uncommon.
0: And so is
1: Tim. I am too. This is and here's <laughs> Andy <comfy>. and Charlie <laughs> in the corner
0: in shorts and flip flops. Uh, I actually, for a long time, because I I previously worked in student life. I do not. It's we're in a new season of life now. And uh, but very very uh, frequently we would have casual days. And to me, pants are pants. It's like there's no difference to me from blue jeans to khaki pants. It's pants are pants. And if the pants fit, it's like who cares? But every time I'd come in, I'd be like Charlie, why are you why are you wearing casual? Did you forget? Like no, I just like just grabbed a pair of pants. You know, it's like yeah,
1: you see, that's a big part of it for me. I get up in the morning, I'm just kind of on autopilot. And I'm getting dressed. I'm like, I'm not thinking. Oh, it's casual day today. No,
0: for me, it's usually okay. I live for these days. <laughs> You're horrendous. It's it's what is clean and what's on top. Those are the two <laughs> biggest Ooh, things. for there me. There we go. There we go. Okay, so let well, uh. To, to quote one of your students, let's roll up the ball of yarn. And uh, so we mentioned Greek <laughs> classical literature, and uh, we, want, we want to talk about that. We want to have a conversation about that. And that's why we have Dr. Boyd, who is the, uh, uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, the residential expert on literature, because he's the literature professor.
1: At our school, you are the expert.
0: Let's just say if we're going to compare your expertise to my expertise... Your, your expertise does reach the heavens and <laughs> that, that comparison.
2: I, see, I was just going to cite that heavens comment. So Time will that.
1: tell. We'll see how this mm. goes. The Iliad. So, how do you say Iliad?
0: That. That's how you say The Iliad. <laughs> so uh, I recently purchased on recommendation a uh, specific translation of the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, which are very famous, well-known classical works. And so we want to have a conversation about that. Just uh, a little bit of a, a discussion here. If you've ever heard of a, of a Trojan horse, this is where it comes from. It's from the Odyssey. Um, I'm going to give the Charlie dumbed down version of what happens. So a guy.
3: Well, let's let's, let's stop oh, yeah. for a second. The Trojan horse yeah. actually is part of the Iliad and uh, the Aeneid. It's mentioned in the Odyssey, but it's not a major part. Well, it's.
0: He's the expert. Menel, Menelaus
3: and Helen, when uh, Telemachus goes to visit them in Sparta, they tell the, the story, and there's a, there's a reference to Helen walking around the Trojan horse, speaking in the voices of the men's wives inside. It's a very strange moment in the Odyssey because she's Greek, and the people inside the horse are Greek, or Achaeans as they're known, and so it's weird or strange that she would try to get them to come out and give up the, the battle plan, so there's a lot of debate about that scene, but anyway. Okay,
0: so you mentioned a couple of people, <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm just going gonna, gonna to bring it, way, cookies, cookies on the bottom shelf here, it's a story about a guy from Rome who goes over to Greece and takes a guy's wife with him back to Troy, and then there's a big war about this. And the famous character in the Iliad is a man known by the name of Achilles. And really, the, the whole story is about how Achilles is upset and doesn't want to fight. And then he finally does, and it goes well. And then, yeah, you're, you're shaking. That's cookies <laughs> on the bottom shelf. Cookies on the bottom shelf. It goes somewhat well. And uh, then book number two, The Odyssey, is about one of the, um, I don't know if you'd call Odysseus an Achaean, would you? You wouldn't
3: yeah I mean he's one sure. of the, he's on the Achaean side he's, so, he's from Ithaca, but he's a, he's a yeah. Greek. Yeah.
0: So Odysseus and he's trying to get home. that's book two. and then book three, I really don't know anything about the Aeneid, so I won't just pick your brain on that. but so uh, Odysseus and Aeneas are characters that make uh, appearances in the Iliad, which is the only one I've read and uh, kind of they all kind of come together in this compilation. So let's talk about them.
3: Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Um first, these are epics. So they are the epic, Iliad, I heard. the Odyssey <laughs> and the Aeneid are all epics. So what in the world is an epic? What is an epic? So an epic would be a long narrative poem. So it's a poem that's telling a story and poetry is written in verse, it's not written in prose. And it's about um kind of the actions of a larger-than-life or quasi-divine character upon whom the fate of a nation or a kingdom or even the world in some cases rests. Um, And the poetry is written in an elevated style, so don't think when you read the Odyssey or when you read the Iliad or when you read the Aeneid that people in, you know, 8th century BC, Greece are walking around speaking that way. It's, it's It's a literary elevated style of diction. So that's what an epic is. Um, And they're written in a certain kind of meter, uh, hexameter. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here, but this does come into play uh, later on as well. But a hexameter is basically a line of poetry that has six poetic feet within it. And well, what makes a foot? Well, there's certain kinds of meter. um, You know, thinking about English literature, the most common meter in English literature is iambic, uh, which is a foot that is unstressed followed by a stress. Um, okay. Get into that more. But uh, anyway, the epics are written in dactylic hexameter, and it's a combination of dactyls and spondees. So dactylic would be, Woo! in English, it'd be a stress followed by an unstress and an unstress. So the word strawberry, for example, you can hear how my voice stressed the first part. And then mm-hmm. two soft stresses on the second part. A spondee is actually two stresses. Well, in Greek epic poetry, it actually refers less to um, the stress and more to just the time it takes to pronounce the words. So, a dactyl in Greek epic poetry is long, short, short. Mm. So that's how a, a a line of poetry is mm. is written. So there's four, six total, but the first four the poet has a little bit of opportunity to play around. It has to be either dactyls or spondees, but it doesn't have to be in a specific order. The final two always end dactyl spondee, And so what this, what this does when a poet is reciting the poetry is, in the beginning, it sounds, there's a little bit of variation. You're not exactly sure mm-hmm. what to expect, but it always ends the same way. And so you have thinking about the Odyssey, for example, thinking about the Iliad, for example, even the poetic line itself actually kind of reveals what the story is about in some sense. It's about variation and chaos being brought back into order. Mm -hmm. And even the line itself does that. But anyway.
1: So if you think this is really irrelevant and unnecessary, well, there's this thing called poetry in the Bible as well. And um, Hebrew poetry is a major... Um, I think like two-thirds of the Old Testament is written in poetry. So if you're like, man, hexameter and blah, 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 blah. Well, a lot of these terms are even used in biblical studies. So it is pretty relevant. Um, we don't know as much about Hebrew meter, though. Uh, in fact, a lot of the Hebrew meter and stuff is based upon Greek meter.
0: Okay, so I want to jump in. I want to back up just a little bit. What, so the I have a specific translation It's Fagel's translation. And so most of the things that we read, we don't have to translate because most of the books you purchase in the United States are probably written by English-speaking people. And not a lot of people are digging around in Greek classics. And when you go to Amazon and type this in, you're going to find I don't know how many translations of this. So what makes a good translation of, uh, of the Greek text for the Iliad?
3: That's a good question. The three translations that you'll find most readily available at used bookstores and bookstores and Amazon, we Robert Fagles, and it won a prestigious award for translation. Um, Richard Lattimore is another famous translator, and then um, Fitzgerald. Let's see, uh, Robert Fitzgerald. I'm not an expert on what makes each one superior to or, or one superior to the others, but I will say people that are experts tend to like the Robert Fitzgerald translation. And the reason for that is within these epic poems, there's a number of stock expressions, the same thing repeated over and over again. And from what I've heard is that um, Fitzgerald himself in his English transa- translation repeats things very frequently, whereas Fagels mixes it up a little bit because kind of our modern sensibilities are we want variation as opposed to the same thing over and over again. It seems repetitive, and of course, repetition is the name of the game in Mm. this kind of poetry. Sounds like Hebrew. Yes. But I like Fagels because he's accessible, um, and it's it's one that a lot of classical schools use and a lot of high schools that still teach the Odyssey use.
0: So let let me ask another question. So if, if you're not catching the theme yet, there's a lot of things that happen as you read one of these classics that happen in, in biblical interpretation, like poetry, like translation. And here's another one. Uh, when you get Fagel's translation, there's a very lengthy introduction. And I started reading through this, trying to understand what I'm, what I'm reading. And they're, they're talking a lot about authorship of, of this poem. And more or less, they're, they're kind of tearing to shreds the idea that one guy named Homer wrote this. Says, well, there's no way that this could actually be one author. It's got to be a compilation of authors over X amount of years. And I started reading, and I'm actually like, found myself like really buying into their, their reasoning. And then I kind of like stepped back from my thinking and was like, wait a minute. This is exactly what criticism, uh, critics of, of the Bible do. Uh, especially with the Old Testament, and I'm like, hold on, I'm like just lock, stock, and barrel, agreeing with them because it's not the Bible. So, Doctor Boyd, wh- wh- how do how do we look at the authorship of of a document like this? Hmm. Just open-ended question.
3: So one of the difficulties in claiming Homeric authorship of the Odyssey and the Iliad, and let me pause here to say we don't debate the authorship of the Aeneid. The Aeneid yeah. was composed. Um Virgil died in uh, 19 BC and he was under the patronage of Augustus Caesar Augustus at the time and so we know that he wrote the Aeneid um and I want to talk more about the ways in which he's both paying homage to Homer and kind of trolling Homer mm. in the in the Aeneid <laughs> but yes. what, one of the, one of the things that makes it difficult with Homer is we really don't know anything about Homer. We know very little about him at all of with certainty they don't even agree on where he lived, where he was born, where he lived, Chios or Smyrna, we don't know. We don't even know when he lived. There's historical debate about that as well. And so that's what makes it problematic. And then when you actually begin to look at the poem itself or the poems themselves, a lot of similar questions do come to mind that come to mind when one is looking at scripture. So what are some of the objections that people bring to scripture that would lead them to think that maybe Genesis or something has to be compiled instead of under the
2: authorship of a single person verbiage, I mean, what what one author, there's there's certain words that are used for God's name, and then later it changes, or there's uh, certain phrases that seem more akin to later works, like in Chronicles, uh, you're the OT guy.
1: Duplicate accounts, so you have like two creation, myths, um, I don't believe they're a myth. I yeah, he had air quotes I, there, everybody, I, air quotes. I tried to do it with my... Tone, but it was good, it was tonally good. I anachronisms thought. are presumed anachronisms, so it doesn't quite fit the setting of um, that time period. So, those would be a couple,
3: yeah. Those are great, both linguistic uh, consistency and then historical accuracy. So, to bring it into modern terms, if we were reading a document and it said and it was talking about the ways in which people communicate and the word you know or the idea of text messaging never appeared in that conversation we might have some way of kind of determining okay this probably was written before 2007 when the first iPhone <laughs> came out or whenever text text messaging became a thing um, so there's those kinds of things and within the odyssey and within the iliad there are words that are from you know generations that differ and so that's one thing people look at and they think this can't possibly be written by by one man and then historically there's you know the armor that the men wear in the Iliad the odyssey is bronze but there's also references to iron and so what age are we talking about here and why is homer mixing these various historical ages and periods
0: so or even you'd hear implicit in that is just like there a, a view of history being presupposed upon a text which Welcome to biblical studies in in secular, uh, secular schools. So, so I uh, haven't
1: read these, but could there be like bronze and iron armor being used?
3: Yeah, or? I think I think so. And there's ways to think through these um, objections logically. I will say that I think there's a lot of debate about it. I think a lot of contemporary scholars don't believe that it was written by one poet. I think. The man who wrote the introduction to Robert Fagels is Bernard Knox. He's a really highly respected classicist. And I think he does argue that Homer is responsible for the authorship of these things. But it's complicated. Another reason it's complicated is when did the Greeks even learn to write? Was Homer even literate? Yeah, we don't talk about that stuff at all in biblical studies,
1: do
0: we? I'm being sarcastic. He brings that up in the introduction. How? yep. Like almost exclusively every character that would be in the book that you're reading, in, in it's not a book, in the epic poem that you're reading, would not be literate.
3: Yeah, there's only one, one character in both the Iliad and the Odyssey that is referenced to being able to write at all. Um, so that's interesting. And we're talking about epics that have dozens and dozens of characters in them. So that's another discussion that people bring to the text. I think one of the ways, one of the quick answers It is that Homer is dealing with an oral tradition. And if you think about the conversation I was leading a moment ago about dactylic dactylic hexameter or the hexameter line, if you're an oral poet and you're performing this as entertainment and you have to improvise, you can improvise in those first four metrical feet, but in the end you have to have a dactyl and a spondee, what are you going to do? You're going to try to think of stock expressions that you can bring back to mind. In those moments, because it allows you to buy time to think about what you're going to do the next line. Oh. And so, over time, poets, you know, listening to other poets begin to share these stock expressions and things like that. Um, and so, Homer incorporates a lot of those stock expressions from various generations. Hundreds of years could separate these stock expressions. And so, he brings them together. That's one possible. That's fascinating uh, way to, think to think about. about. And then, of course, he gets the objection, well, then how creative is Homer himself if he's just compiling, (laughs) you know, and there again, I think it's the length of these works. It's not it's not something that somebody who couldn't write would probably be able to do.
0: Sure. So let's let's jump into really. So. Outside of manuscripts of scripture. Like the next attested to document that we have from antiquity would be the Odyssey, if I'm not mistaken. And so, like, there's a reason why this is kind of like a, a famous deal. And, uh, but, you know, I think we all understand that this might be just a little bit out of reach to the normal listener. And so, really, the question I want to get to is we, we just had, a, I mean, if, if what we've already talked about doesn't fascinate you, I don't know. There's some people that, that, and that fascinates me, and it makes me want to go back and read the introduction again. But, so, maybe that's not your cup of tea. So, let's maybe steer a little bit away. Outside of all that stuff, what's the value in reading these? Like, why, why would a student at faith or in college or just a, a rando, like, why should they pick these books up?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. And particularly for this audience, the question that's raised is, why would a Christian... I mean, these are long works. the mm-hmm. the, the Iliad is fifteen thousand plus lines. The Odyssey is twelve thousand plus lines. It takes time. Why would a Christian take the time to read something like this? And really, that's a question that has been asked in the church for a long, long time. Um, sometimes you'll encounter somebody who will refer to Peter, who says, "You know, have nothing to do with cleverly devised myths." And Tim, even you earlier said, used the word myth and you kind of used it in a disparaging sense. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about that maybe in a moment. But um, then you have Paul who also says something similar to Titus about myths and kind of avoid them. Um, Tertullian, the church father, asks the famous question, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Mm-hmm. Um, and for him, the answer is nothing. <laughs> um, and so I think there's kind of there's that binary: the fact that you can either like there can't be both. You either are devoting yourself wholly to scripture, or you're giving yourself over to secular entertainment. I don't. I just don't personally. I don't think that that holds up. And uh, the church has many examples of people that have sought to what Augustine called plunder the Egyptians. So Augustine in, uh, on Christian teaching or on Christian doctrine has a passage in which he's referring to Exodus 3 when the Israelites leave Egypt and they take the treasures and the gold that the Egyptians give them. And Augustine refers to that as um, what can Christians do with pagan philosophers and pagan authors? And Augustine's answer to that question is, well, you plunder the gold and you leave the dross behind. You take the things that are good, that you can use, and you redeem them and you leave the things aside that you can't do that with. That's one response. And so you think about these works. Are they, I mean, one of the object, objections would be these ancient Greek epics or Virgil's Roman epic, they're filled with sensuality, sexuality. Mm. Greek mythology is filled with rape, incest. Um, you know, Zeus is constantly seducing women and making his wife. Hera, angry at him. Why would we read such things? You know, why would we spend our time doing that? What do you guys think? Like what do you think about that? If these works do have objectionable objectionable material in them, such as the things that I just mentioned, why should we read why why should we read them?
2: Hmm. I'll take a crack at it. Uh, this is from the hip. So I might later redact this and
0: and hips don't lie
2: (laughs) away. I think that, um, as, as much as is profitable and as much as is appropriate, especially taking into account your level of spirituality and maturity. I think that understanding the ideas and the teachings that have brought our culture to where they are today is a valuable, um, a valuable pursuit, and so today, especially in the West, I think these books have had a massive um, long-term effect. I think if you think of um, even in in the the Enlightenment was there was a lot of bad things in the Enlightenment, but part of what they were doing is they were trying to reach back into Greece and to the philosophers, and they were trying to like recover some of that stuff. And so when when the, when the break between having any sort of a transcendent revelation, uh, having anything to say with life, uh, when that broke and now we only have what's down here, part of what was informing them, some of the cases was some of these works. Uh, they were going back and finding some of those things in the West specifically when I, and I, and not just the West, but in Westernized cultures, uh, a lot of these philosophers and a lot of these writings have had a big effect. So I don't think that it would be wrong for me as a Christian to say, why does our culture look the way that it does? And I could do the Sunday school answer and say, well, it's because of sin and I could stop there. And I think that's not inappropriate, but I also think that studying these things out could help me better understand the world that I'm in. And our motto at our school is with the word to the world. And so I need to know the word, but there is a level of, of awareness of the world around me that I have to have to where I could communicate with them and approach the issues and the ideas they have. So I, maybe that's one answer I could go. I think maybe, um, one other thought would be this. Um, this is if I'm a, if I'm a soldier or I'm an athlete, let's say I'm an athlete. Okay. So I'm going to be a football player. Um, I'm yeah. Tim laughed cause he knows what I look like. So I'm I'm on the field and I need to know how to do certain things. I need to be able to push the guy in front of me away from me. I need to be able to run really fast and catch a ball. Well, sometimes in practice I do things that are not pushing people away from me, running fast and catching a ball. Sometimes I do things called sit-ups or push-ups or all kinds of other weird things. But what that does is it physically trains me. And so maybe there's an element where studying this stuff helps to mentally train us and make it just like going to the gym for our mind.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'll- Dovetail off of what you're saying about the world. I, I think that struggling through, and, and and that's honestly what it probably will be for most people. Like, my hands up. like If you're going to read through this, you're going to struggle through it because the way that it's written is written in a way of thinking that we don't think like. So to read it and understand it, you have to think a different way. And so uh, it is a struggle. But to do that, we're going to learn things that are going to help us engage our culture. I do mm-hmm. think there's value there. But I think coming to something like this, where you know it's not like, there's not a one-to-one correspondence to your life. You're not going to read through this and be like, oh yeah, so tomorrow I'm going to do this.
2: I'm going to make sure I have my my heel guarded. So Yeah, you know, yeah, I mean. you know?
0: <laughs> low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit. Oh, I know. Um, but <laughs> it is it is in a sense of specific cultivation, like, you're you're intentionally taking effort to think and to cultivate your mind and, and even in a sense your imagination, which if you can do that well, that's going to aid you in any theological study. So I, I really like your illustration mm-hmm. of you're going to do all of these things like sit-ups and push-ups, and you're never going to do that in the game. But if you do those things, what you do in the game is going to be enhanced. Mm-hmm. And so you, you learn from things like this to engage, for example— another work that is massively in majority poetry, which is the Hebrew Old Testament. So thoughts? I don't know. Tim, you've been quiet. You want to jump in on that one? I,
1: I'm hesitant sometimes when it comes to, oh, I need to know the world, so then I know who I'm talking to. Uh, there needs to be a limit. Um, I don't need to know everything about the world. There's enough dirt and junk that I don't need to. It reaches a point where you don't need to Expose yourself to that level of poison. Um, That's true. Yep. So be careful with what we're talking about here, that you don't just start imbibing stuff that is uh, a a really strong poison. And then at the same time, you know, Andy kind of mentioned maturity and Christian maturity. We, uh, myself as a scholar and studying the Song of Songs a lot, uh, drink... uh, a lot, a lot of poison we look A lot at of poison sometimes. Or <laughs> <smile> or, <laughs> and or the purpose of that is not to um, dabble in sin and it's not not to uh, test my spirituality or whatever, but it's to be able to interact with people who are struggling with sin or struggling with ideas. And so um, just be aware that uh, as you... Advance in the Christian life, you're able better to discern what's right and what's wrong. Uh, And you want to be, and you want to make sure that you're able to discern, okay, this is poison. I need to be able to spit this part out. So um, there's a lot of talk about we need to redeem the culture. We need to redeem the culture. Well, sometimes the culture is just rotten. Okay. And so we can just kind of spit that part out. Now, I don't know if you're going to get into myth and talk about like the aspects of myth that are consistent with the biblical worldview. And so that's a specific different definition of myth that I tend to just downplay and not make a a point of. I don't have a problem saying that the Bible was a true myth, but generally speaking, and even saying that on this podcast, I'm kind of hesitant just because so many people, they're uh, influenced by a popular definition of myth, which basically is this idea that the myth is false. So I don't have a problem saying that the Bible is a true myth, and if I, I say that, I'm saying that the myth is basically an origin story the Bible is an origin story; it's a true one. So, if we're going to define myth that way, now generally I just stay away from that because that's not a common people's understanding of myth. But that is a very uh, historical, in fact, probably the most historic definition of myth uh, um, in English literature. But anyway, I can we can move into that or whatever.
3: Yeah, let me let me backtrack just for a moment. I Greek mythology does have a lot of things in it. Um, that one might find objectionable. I don't want to paint that picture of the epics necessarily. They do have a lot of gory battle scenes and there is a moment there are moments of you know sensuality and things like that. There um, but the the question that we have to ask is if a work includes some objectionable material, does that automatically mean that we must avoid it or dismiss it?
1: Okay, well, we can answer that one easily because the Bible contains objectionable material. <clears throat> yeah, there's a, incest, there's rape, there's violence within the Scriptures. So anyway, you could, yeah, sorry. Yeah,
3: so that's exactly right. Um So it doesn't mean that if it includes objectionable material that we automatically dismiss it. We have to think about what is the author doing with the objectionable material? Is the author Mm -hmm. using that objectionable material to show that it is in fact objectionable, Mm -hmm. that it is in fact wrong? Or is the author incorporating that material to cause you to desire it? If he or she is causing you to desire it, then it's crossing a line and we should avoid it. So let me just make it really practical here and talk about the Odyssey briefly. One reason I love teaching the Odyssey at Faith Baptist Bible College (laughs) is...
0: Shameless plug. (laughs) Shameless plug.
3: Is um, the theme of the work. The first four books, so the Odyssey is 24 books um, in length, the epic, and those probably correspond to papyrus codexes, Mm. you know, because they can't be so long. Um, So each book was probably a... Codex of some sort, but anyway, the first four books are called the Telemachy, and this is what's intriguing about the Odyssey. The Odyssey literally means the story of Odysseus, but Odysseus doesn't show up until book five. That's kind of strange for a book. To yeah, be. Um, and he's mentioned, of course, in the proem, which is the opening of any epic, which gives you the main idea, the main character, and those kinds of things. Um, but it's this his the revelation of Odysseus is. is Withheld until book five. Well, why is that? Is it just a mistake? Is it just written by some other poet? That's possible. That's what some people argue. It's an inconsistency in the narrative. But what we might argue is that it's actually thematically very important because what is the Odyssey about? It's about Odysseus being away from Ithaca for 20 years. He's gone for 10 years fighting the Trojan War. That's what part of what the Iliad is about. And then he's trying to get home for 10 years as well. And At home on Ithaca, his wife Penelope is waiting for him faithfully to return. And Telemachus, his son, is now 20 years old and cannot rid the hall of these suitors who are pining after his mother. And they're wasting his father's wealth, eating and drinking, living lives of debauchery every day in the palace. What do you see there? Thinking about it from a Christian perspective, what we see is that when the king is gone, Mm. things go haywire. And so the first four books, what Homer, if I can say Homer is doing it, is doing is he's setting the stage and he's revealing, okay, one of the reasons that these men, these suitors are acting this way is because they're, they're boys who grew up without fathers because their fathers were off fighting in the Trojan war. And so they're not, they don't know how to behave. That could be a lesson that any kind of humanist presents to the text as well. But then the, the greater idea is like, what what are we feeling when we finish book four and we see the dire straits that Penelope and Telemachus and Ithaca are in, we are longing for the King to return and to make everything right, hmm. to set everything
0: hmm.
3: in order. And so I, even when I teach that sometimes I like get kind of goosebumps. I'm kind of getting them right now too. Just thinking about like the longing that you feel for Odysseus to come home and to enact justice mm-hmm. is, Powerful. And so that's just one little way. And if I could also just very quickly, the Aeneid, the theme of the Aeneid, so it's the story of Aeneas, who's a, is actually a Trojan. So it's the opposite side. Virgil, I told you a moment ago, he's trolling Homer. <clears throat> so Virgil, purposefully, in the first line of the Aeneid, the first line of the Aeneid is Arma, virumque Cano, which is Latin, and it's, it's basically of arms and a man I sing. And what he's doing there is he's paying homage to Homer. Arms, the Iliad, is about the wrath of Achilles and the battle. It's about arms. It's about fighting. It's about wrath. A man, the Odyssey, is about Odysseus, a man trying to return home. And the first word of the Odyssey is man. First word of the Iliad is wrath. And so what is... Virgil doing there. He's saying, I'm writing the Aeneid, and the Aeneid is going to be both an Odyssey and an Iliad. So the first six books of the Aeneid are the Odyssey, Aeneas leaving Troy as it's burned to the ground by the Greeks and seeking out a new home. And the second half is him conquering in Latium to establish what will eventually become the Roman Empire. Hmm. But throughout, Virgil is also saying, Greeks... You may have won the Trojan War, but the Roman Empire is what Aeneas (laughs) founds, and it far surpasses Greece. And he's paying homage to Augustus as well and the Pax Romana that Augustus ushers in. And the line I said earlier about how my name reaches Mm -hmm. to the heavens, that's from the Odyssey. That's when Odysseus uh, mentions himself for the first time to the Phaeacians after telling him his long story. I am Odysseus. My fame, my kleos, my glory reaches to the heavens. Aeneas... In the first portion of the Aeneid, when he introduces himself to the Carthaginians, to Dido, queen of Carthage, after telling her his struggle to get where he's at, he says something along the lines of, I am Aeneas. My fame reaches above the heavens. And so Virgil is just saying, again, Rome, we're better than Greece. (laughs) and he's writing this <laughs> writing this epic that's supposed to be both an um, uh, paying homage to homer and something better.
0: Okay, so we've learned some lessons here. Uh one, I just want to give a, a, another shameless plug. If you if you uh if the name Telemachus kind of sparked in your mind. Oh yeah.
2: Uh-huh. We
0: actually talked about him way back in like episode 4 and 5 of the podcast where this uh French dude, Francis Fainalon wrote uh in the in a similar ilk of the famous epic, to help mentor uh, a young king, and so a lot of the same themes there in in that. But the other thing that we what we learn here is that we need much more than an hour to talk with uh, with Dr. Boyd about these things. So, uh, you you want to stick around? We'll interview you. We'll do some more. We'll talk broaden the discussion out from these three and just talk more literature. You get good with that. Sure. Okay. Tim's raising his hands over here.
1: Well, I really, I mean, what he just talked about is how you need to go about evaluating good fiction, um, good literature even today. Are they, uh, literature a lot of times is going to have, I don't know, bad stuff in it, okay? There might be um, some some immorality or violence, um, but is the author celebrating that, um, that's like a really important part of just evaluating uh, fiction. It's a reason why my children still haven't read Harry Potter, just because... I
0: was about to mention it. <laughs> I'm going through it right now.
1: I have not even read it yet, but I've seen the movies, and the, the kids are disobedient. And it's just like, there's, they're not celebrating Christian virtues. I would say enough.
0: Well, even, even the, most, the most intelligent of the trio, Hermione by the middle of the second book, you're like applauding that she's willing to break 50 school rules. Mm-hmm. Yep. And she goes, she goes from like the trying to ships. follow yep. the rules and you're like, you're excited. Oh, Hermione's wanting to break the rules. Like, and you know, what is it celebrating? You
1: know? Right. So when you're thinking through, okay, is this a good, uh, fiction work, then that's where, you know, you, you need to use some dis- discernment, and then for me specifically, just with my children, what I want them to read and what um, I put into their hands. And I can't read everything either, so I go on, uh, go go on a lot of recommendations from various people, like Doctor Boyd, and um, and then and then give some guidance and direction there. Okay, I'm done. Okay. Oh, go
3: ahead. I was just gonna say very quickly. I some of what I do. Uh, as I think about these things is I have a little chart and I talk about the kind of the philosophy that the work espouses. And then we talk about the aesthetics of Mm. the work. And I know that you can't necessarily always separate those things, but there's a couple of options. So a book can have a philosophy that's biblical and it can have aesthetics that are also beautiful, mm -hmm, true and good. Mm -hmm. That would be, the kind of work that we're really looking for, right? There's also works that have good philosophy, biblical philosophy, but the aesthetics are hackneyed or uh, poorly done. Mm -hmm. Um, I could name names, but I won't. You can kind of bring those people to mind. So thinking about C.S. Lewis, for example, fables. Fables have, they're they're teaching good lessons, but for C.S. Lewis, they're just not done artistically, and so they fall flat. Then you have those works that have a bad philosophy, but they're done so well. Mm. And these are the ones that we really have to be careful about. Right. Because those authors can manipulate you into longing for something that you ought not to long for or cheering for something you ought not to cheer for. Um, And then the final one would be bad philosophy done poorly. And those
2: are trash, trash. It's funny. Back in the day, I used to, growing up, I had different sensibilities. But- I was a big action movie fan and so I would see like an action movie where like the hero goes to war and wins and there's no, no fear and he obliterates the enemy and, you know, and as a, a young boy, you're like, I want to go fight in a war and be a hero. And then I remember in high school seeing the movie Saving Private Ryan and I'm trying to promote this. I'm just saying that the they did not try to present war as a glorious thing, but as something that had to be done and watching it, you were a little bit revulsed By what you were seeing and yet you were like, man, that was heroic, but you didn't walk away from that movie thinking that was awesome. Let's all go fight. And it was intriguing because I'd watched so many action movies and all this trash growing up that that was the first movie that made me question, is this really good? And then at the time I had a biblical worldview. So here I'm thinking, here's all of God's image bearers, just shredding each other. You know, that's not a a thing that glorifies God. Let's, let's set our mind on that or whatever. So Thanks for your thoughts, Josh. We appreciate it. All right, so here uh, we want to have a final thought from the Scriptures. Final thought from the Scriptures today. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 2 and just briefly dive into the first few verses here. Uh, It starts off saying, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight, and if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver, and you search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This proverb, this chapter goes on in Proverbs to say a whole lot more about pursuing wisdom, and I think we may have even talked about this verse before in the podcast, but it's worth uh, repeating. If you think about the ways that Solomon is urging his son uh, to pursue wisdom, it, it's not half-hearted. And so at first he says, if you receive my words, there's a, a sense here in which you have to be willing to not reject what God is saying, Uh, If you treasure up my commandments, I used to think treasure up meant um, value it highly, but it actually means store it up, like try to get a hold of it. So the idea is that you don't need it right now, but you might need it later. And I think for us, there's a lot of pragmatism in our minds. If I don't think this is going to be valuable to me now, why would I spend my time on it? And what we were just talking about in reading good literature and trying to understand uh, how all that works, there's an element there. I'm not going to say this is what Solomon's talking about, but there is an element where learning what you can is helping you to be uh, equipped to talk about things you wouldn't be if you didn't study these things. And that can be a way that you can serve the Lord. So I usually make this point when I'm talking an introduction to Bible study about language, that English is an important class because it helps you understand your Bible because your Bible is translated into English. So there's, anyways, that's kind of an aside thought. But Solomon goes on to say, you need to make your ear attentive to wisdom. That means it's like tuned in. It's like when um, you open a package of food and your dog across the room hears a wrapper crinkle if you have a pet. And then they come running in. Why? Because that dog's ears have been tuned uh, to that sound because it knows there's food coming. It says if you incline your heart to understanding, if your whole inner person, the part of you that's not physical, is aimed at understanding the wisdom that comes from God. Now think about just those those few ideas right there. When it comes to pursuing wisdom, it this is not a passive activity. This is not something that you do just accidentally one day. Oh, I happened to learn some wisdom today. This is a very focused and even you might even say aggressive in fact look at the next verse. If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. I usually raise my voice when I'm frustrated or something's really, really important. Like someone's about to get hurt. You raise your voice. Well, are you going to, are you going to put that kind of energy into following and seeking after God? And then it says, if you seek for it like silver or search for it as hidden treasures, I think the idea here is you don't give up. You try, you try, you try, and then you don't give up. Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God for the Lord gives wisdom. So when it comes for to searching to know the Lord and understand him, when it comes to finding the wisdom that he offers, I don't think God has envisioned a very passive uh, sit-back-and-let-it-happen idea. And so just to tie a little bit into what we talked about today, there is a sense in which if you're physically active and you've disciplined your body, if you're mentally active and you do the hard work of understanding books like this, it's it's disciplining your mind. There is a benefit in your walk with God because you're ready to take that kind of effort and put it into following the Lord. Uh, I just read a book um, the other day where the guy said, you know, we all golfers will work very, very hard to shave a stroke or two off of their their, um, their handicap. Uh, people will work really hard to binge an entire season of something over the weekend. okay? But how many of us are willing to put that kind of effort into our walk with God? So, do you want to know wisdom? Do you want to know the Lord? Cry out, seek after it, work hard, trust the Lord.
0: And now we're rolling right on into an interview where we want to get to know Dr. Boyd a little bit more. So, again, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I have to ask the question that every student is actually wondering, which is, how did you get so good at basketball? Yes! Because yes! if you've played dorm ball with Dr. Boyd, he's staff team didn't lose this year. It was
2: We never I, lose. I, all I heard was from multiple students that he's just a beast. But this year it was because of you.
0: He had... he had, And
2: I didn't show
1: up much. That helped us out a lot.
0: <laughs> the first game, the first game of the year, here's Dr. Boyd, and I'm watching, and I'm like, I don't know what to expect, and he just goes off. I mean, I don't know how many points you scored in that game, but it had to be like 20-ish. You hit a bunch of threes. You hit a bunch of threes. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this is our literature professor. So do you have any comment on that?
2: I would just say a misspent youth. <laughs>
0: Can you That's, give us a yeah. little
2: more detail on that one, Josh?
3: <laughs> I really enjoyed athletics as a, as a young person and was always involved in sports basically all year round. Um, and yeah, so I have an older brother and an older sister. My older sister is also very athletic, and so she and I would play a lot of things together. My brother actually cultivated his brain as a high school student. And so he's very intellectual and did all the things that I should have been doing <laughs> can you when hear I the was tone? out at the park playing on the playground and playing basketball.
2: What's that?
0: Oh, yeah, it was, can you hear the tone? It was just like the, the the I don't know what the word is, the disgust.
2: <laughs> See, I didn't play, I didn't exercise sports. I didn't exercise my mind. I just played video games. Okay, here's, and that didn't help
0: me at all. I legitimately was riding home from church the other day. Today's today's Monday? Was that yesterday? Mm-hmm. It was yesterday. Mm-hmm. And on my way home, I started thinking how many hours I spent playing video games. Oh, and if I could take all hurts. of those hours and devote to one subject.
2: Oh, yeah. You'd how an I expert.
0: would like master it. Yep. Yeah. And it's so like you just wasted that. It's, it's just part
1: of maturing as a young person. So if you're so, somebody that played a lot of video games when you're younger, well, let's start redeeming the time.
2: That's you're not right. younger anymore. That's what you should say. P- pick up something that will help <laughs> you later on in life. Because okay. I can't tell you how many times I have not needed to know the code for 30 extra lives to Contra my entire life but I do know it still
0: that is an old school right there it is but I am old I,
3: I will say that basketball has enabled me to interact with people that I wouldn't otherwise interact with though. so it, it does have a benefit
1: it yeah something along the providence of God and, right you know okay if Ouch. I was
0: gonna if I was gonna merge a game with the intellect something I have been getting into recently is chess
2: I love chess and I think that yep.
0: that, that is there's something there but yeah. anyway we're not here that, to talk that's about that's worth it that we're here Okay, so Dr. Boyd, you're a Faith Baptist alum. Yes. And you went from faith. You eventually landed at the school in Texas, Baylor. And uh, at Baylor, you studied literature. Well, you
1: were at Central before that. Oh, and thank you. You had a path there. I wanted to kind of ask you about that, like, just kind of He walk was so us great through. Central, man. Walk, walk us, us down. Me so he he in invited here. me over to uh, his apartment when I was uh, um, working on my THM.
0: Walk us down the yellow brick road of your educational life.
3: So I graduated from faith in 2004 with an English education degree. And then I taught actually one year overseas. I was married uh, as a sophomore or as a junior, I guess, before my junior year. What took you so long? Yeah. that's horrendous.
1: (laughs) So you graduated in 04 with your bachelor's? Yes.
3: Okay. Yep. And spent a year overseas, my wife and I. And I was teaching in a school there in in uh, Lima, Peru. And then Mm. taught for two years at Fourth Baptist Christian School in Plymouth. And then decided I needed to go back to school. I needed more interaction with content of literature. Um, And so pursued a master's degree. First, I went to St. Cloud State University, did about half of a master's degree there, but didn't feel that it was preparing me for more rigorous education, if that was something that was coming in the future. I wasn't sure at that point. So I transferred to the University of Saint Thomas in Saint Paul, Minnesota, and completed a master's degree there in English while working full time at Central Seminary as well. And what then, what was after, your uh, position at Central? I don't remember. I was an enrollment services representative. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and I did editing for the publications. And, I just
1: remember taking our little boy. He was we only had one at the time to your apartment.
2: And you had us over for like a meal or something when I was yeah. beginning my. THM. I just remember my transcript made way more sense after you started working <laughs> there. I knew what classes were coming, you answered questions, it was so great.
0: So, so how many years have eclipsed at this <laughs> point? True. So two thousand and four you left Faith and so a year in Peru, two years at fourth, and so now it's four or five years removed from undergrad.
3: Right. Yeah. So it took with the transferring, it took me three years to finish my master's degree. So in two thousand ten, May two thousand ten, I graduated.
0: Ew, me too.
3: Uh, from from St. Thomas <laughs> with hey, oh not you a master's degree in literature
0: mine was not with a master's degree it was that first one you get from high,
3: high school, school. <laughs> and I actually had a conversation with Dr. Bowder in the break room as I was coming to the near the conclusion of my master's degree and I just said I want to do something that's meaningful and in retrospect it's probably not the best thing to say to your boss. Um, <laughs> But he was especially him. <laughs> He was Kleos. charitable, and he said, why don't, you cons- why don't you think about being a professor? I was thinking, well, I did kind of enjoy my master's degree. Maybe I could go on for more schooling. And so ended up looking at grad schools, emailed a bunch of different grad schools and said, hey, I'm, I have a degree from a small Bible college. I have a master's degree from St. Thomas, and you think I'd be in a fit in your school. Got some responses from some, didn't hear back from others waded through it all and decided I want to go to Baylor because they have a Christianity and literature emphasis in their PhD program. And I had uh, interchanged or exchanged emails with Dr. Ralph Wood at Baylor, who's a Flannery O'Connor scholar and some other things, GK Chesterton and so Tolkien. And he got back to me immediately and sent me chapters of books that he had written and things that he had in the works. And so I actually applied to only Baylor which is not what students are doing to get into grad school. You end up applying for 10, 15 schools most of the time. I applied only to Baylor, and I got accepted somehow. Um, so I went down there in 2010 and uh, was there until 2015. I had finished all my coursework and my preliminary exams and had defended my prospectus, but landed a full-time job at Trevecca Nazarene University. Um, without kind of, And that also is unusual. Um, it's not anything about me it's about the Lord leading and directing in certain areas and so I was at, at Trevecca for five years and teaching full-time and finishing my dissertation and then in, in 2020 came back to faith to be closer to family my wife's family is in central Iowa so we're so, all thankful amen so you at Trevecca for five years yes and where's Trevecca Nashville Tennessee gotcha
1: oh what was your dissertation on
3: the Search for True Hospitality in the Travel Literature of Margaret Fuller, Henry David Thoreau, Herman Melville, and Mark Twain. Huh. The Search for True Hospitality. Right. So what is true hospitality? Well, it was something that was debated, It's been debated, um, over the centuries, but particularly in the 19th century. That's a poem that Ralph Waldo Emerson, maybe not a poem. It was a, it's a blurb that he had in a magazine about true hospitality and what it is. And so when we think about hospitality, we often think about inviting people into your home that are like-minded and similar in position, socioeconomic status, those kinds of things. You just mentioned I invited you over. Well, of course I did, because we knew each other from faith and we're similar in our interests and in our background. So, But hospitality actually, culture, biblically and in ancient cultures, is much broader than that. You actually are willing to invite whoever shows up at your door into your home. And so thinking about in a 19th century American context, Americans think of themselves as being very hospitable people, and yet at the same time in the 19th century, what do we have? We have all this legislation, you know, Fugitive Slave Act, 1850, where it becomes illegal to actually aid and abet fugitive slaves. You have Indian removal. You have issues with uh, tourism and travel and those kinds of things. So thinking through that, these authors were thinking through those issues, and I was arguing that they were talking about hospitality in order to make a point
0: kind of about American culture and politics. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So since Tim took my question about oh, did the PhD, <clears throat> I'm going to take his question. So how, how did your, what was my question? Well, I'm about to ask it. I think, <laughs> I think so from your time at faith to a couple of grad schools to a couple of different teaching jobs, Christian school, uh Trebek is that Christian? I can remember if that is Yes. So a couple of different opportunities to teach, a couple of opportunities to be taught, and then now again you're teaching at a at a college. How's your educational philosophy developed mm. over that span of time?
1: Yeah, that was my question. That was that's a good question, Charlie. Yeah.
0: It's a lot better question <laughs> than tell me about your dissertation, but you, you dug the hole, okay?
3: So my understanding of education shifted radically. From my time at Central Seminary. Kevin Bowder, reading the nick Hang of time every week. At Central or after Central? At Central. Okay. So the three years that I worked at Central okay. Seminary. Sure. Kevin
0: Bowder, a thinkling, an honorary thinkling. That's he's, right. He sat
2: Honorary thinkling. That's right. Yeah. He actually sat in Josh's seat. You're sitting in Kevin No, Bowder's. he didn't. He was sitting over here. We were freezing over. in that no, no, that was Doug Brown. Where you had the blanket? Yeah. No, I sent, I don't remember. Anyways, Tim, come on.
0: It, irrelevant. Okay, That's so exactly you're right. at Central.
2: <laughs> radical shift. You became radical. Keep going.
0: Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> this happens often.
3: You know, I had not thought really too much about.
2: He I thought miss about, a beat. Like, do you notice that he just goes right back at it? Watch. He won't. I think even do it's because it right
0: he's actually prepared Stop what he's going to say. Let the and guy talk. <laughs>
3: I thought about education, but I thought about education in ways that were kind of unthoughtful, if that makes any sense. And just interacting with people at Central, particularly my boss, Eric White, um, was classically educating his daughters and got me thinking a lot about classical education, got me reading some of the early kind of classical materials. Um, and people that I now know more about um, and might disagree with a little bit, but Mortimer Adler idea proposal Adler is kind of a humanist he's not really even interested in Christian education he just thinks about the classics as being these things that can instill virtue in students and so there's quite a bit missing from his philosophy but in any case that really got me down this path and thinking more critically about education and then I went to Baylor and Dr. Philip Donnelly kind of took me under his wing and some other guys and would have breakfast with us and we would read Different works, like I sat in a class on his about Plato's Republic and John Milton's Paradise Lost, and he was, his whole scholarship is about how he thinks Milton is responding directly to Plato in the various books of Paradise Lost. So another epic, Hmm. Paradise Lost. It's original, uh, it originally was ten books, and the Republic is ten books. So Donnelly is arguing that those there's correspondence. Now, of course, that is fascinating. Paradise Lost is twelve books now because he revised it a little bit. But anyway. He, you know, led us through Augustine's Confessions. Can you,
1: how did he lead
3: you through? You said
1: breakfast or something?
3: Yes. We would have uh, breakfasts once a week at a local cafe, and it was a group of maybe three or four of us. Oh. Um, David Lyle Jeffrey would show up every once in a while, um, who's a really wonderful man as well. And one person in the group would be responsible for leading the group through a book of you know confessions or something um and so we'd have to talk about it the other way he led me is he allowed me to sit in his class on paradise lost and on the republic and just take as many notes as possible Um, but he teaches in the great books program at baylor and that's a program filled with wonderful people
1: great books books in business yeah
0: Would that be connected, like, great books? Is that, like, into the vein of, like, the great conversation in that vein?
3: Right. Yeah, it's a a classical education. So students are – it's selective, and so classes are maybe 12 or 15 students, and they sit around a seminar table, and they just read primary works. So you don't have a survey of Western Civ or something like that. You sit down and you read – primary texts that are related to western civilization and discuss them in philosophy and political
2: theory and literature and those kinds of things. Adler has a list of uh I don't know how many of those in the back of his How to Read a Book. It's uh, it's like I don't know how many he picked, but it's the whole is the western tradition or something like that. Yeah. So, on the topic of books, you're a literature teacher. What are your favorite fiction books? And maybe give us a little reason why.
3: That's a very difficult question. Often I answer it by saying what I'm currently reading. <laughs> um, but that's cheesy. Um, I really like Flannery O'Connor, her short fiction. And it's, for our listeners out there, it's startling. And it's not what you will expect when you encounter it, but she's she's shouting to try to get your attention. And well, so, give,
0: give some background on who this is. Yeah. When is she writing that type of discussion?
3: She is um, writing in the 50s and 60s. She died in 1964 of lupus at a young age. I think she was maybe 40, 41, something like that. I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that, but she was young. Um. What? That's my age. Is that what you're pointing at me for?
0: No, that not what I was not. My pointing time's me for.
3: coming. I, she's from the South, so she writes about Georgia, a context, uh, and and she writes about a lot of people that have a Church of Christ background or a Baptist background, and she herself is a Roman Catholic, pre-Vatican II, very conservative Roman Catholic. But our audience should know that if they want to read O'Connor as well. Um, but there again, she's not writing systematic theology, and so I think. That we can gain something from writing. Others, you know, I read a, or taught a novelist last semester, uh, Peace Like a River by Leif, um, uh oh, Leif Onger. Sorry about that, Mr. Onger. Uh oh. You're not listening.
0: <laughs> is he alive? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, Maybe he, hey, let's not sell ourselves short. L E I F. Yes. That, uh, yeah. Where's he, where's he work?
3: He's uh, from Minnesota, North Dakota, that area. Um, You've had his tech, his books as a textbook. Yeah. Mm.
1: It's I'll a really wonderful a novel. Yeah, I really struggled finding a place to order it from. It was a pain. <laughs> I think I figured it out eventually. He,
0: Wait, so what has he written?
1: He's actually made my life rather challenging coming here because he has all of these okay. publications and books that are really hard for me to find as a bookseller.
0: Well, after you said that, now I won't send him a link, but maybe he'll still find it. So what has he written?
3: Oh, I don't remember. His well known novel is Peace Like a River. Oh, yeah. Yep. We ordered Thousands that. of reviews on Amazon. They're mm. positive. And it's a very good book. And he also is, again, a Christian author um, more broadly than we are here. But that novel is, is wonderful. It's really, hmm. really enjoyable to a student. My students this last semester liked it.
1: Yeah, we have it in stock because of you.
3: <laughs> There's a lot of other things. I, I mean, Mark Twain, I enjoy a lot. And, Dostoevsky, I enjoy it a lot. It's published by Atlantic Monthly Press.
1: Who in the world are they? <laughs>
0: so do you have do you have other questions other than the ramblings <laughs> Sorry, of uh, the publication of this book?
1: <laughs> oh, uh, do I have another question? Um.
0: Yep, that's what I'm wondering. That's
1: it. <laughs> I I mean, I could ask like, you know, um, what are you reading for like nonfiction? Uh, I know your specialty is fiction. Are you reading any nonfiction, or um, what interests you as far as outside of fiction writing?
3: So I'm always reading something of nonfiction, Um, as most of you, you have several books going at once, Um, but in terms of my scholarly life, the nonfiction that I've been reading of late um, is based on, or deals with, The Vice, Akedia, which is a vice that we commonly translate as sloth. But the problem with that is when we think of sloth, we think of
0: cute, cuddly creatures. Laziness.
3: Right. Lazy. Or the, yeah, the laziness or the, the character oh. in the DMV on Zootopia that takes forever to. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is a side, but do you know that I was once attacked by students here at Faith oh, in life size <clears throat> sloth costumes?
3: It was great. It they was lured so wonderful. me into a dorm
0: room and so attacked great. me.
3: That would be terrifying, unless it was in slow motion.
0: But that's not what you're talking about. No. i not talking about that sin. <laughs> Evan, <laughs> Sawyer.
3: Yeah, so Akedia is actually a lack of care, and it re- it's a word that was used to describe people that wouldn't bury their dead. Oh, wow. I mean, who does that? Animals <laughs> don't bury their dead, but human beings, traditionally, culturally, do something with the body of their dead. They don't just let it. They don't just expose it and leave it out. Um, And then it goes from there to have kind of an idea of sorrow or sadness over good that God is doing. So I haven't studied this out, but I wanted to talk to you about this, Tim. Jonah, at the end of the book of Jonah, where he's actually sad that God has shown mercy to Nineveh. In my estimation, that's a kind of Akedia that he's demonstrating there, is sorrow over God's goodness. Um, But I don't know if, there are scholars writing about that in the yeah. Old Testament stories. No, I've never connected it to a
1: sorrow over God's goodness. I I've always viewed it more as a um, um, a displeasure for a lack of God's justice. Sure, yeah. In that he wanted ju- justice and judgment as opposed to the grace of that he himself had received and the people of Israel had received. Well, but that's an interesting way to think about it. I don't know, how it'd be interesting to think about that some more.
0: I'm not sure what chapter it's in. I think it's chapter three. It might be beginning of four, but when he, when he, when he, Jonah dialogues with the Lord, he actually says very specifically, it's like, I knew you would be merciful. Yeah, he's like mad. He's like, he's. it seems like he is upset about like the whole time he's right. like, he's gonna he's gonna forgive him. I know he's gonna do it. And he's like upset about what he knew God would do, which is fascinating. Hmm. But so it's Acedia. What what's Where are you reading about this? Like where's the heart of your study?
3: Well, I mean Thomas Aquinas in the Summa hmm. uh, deals with all of the vices and so he has a section where he asks several questions about Acedia. So that's a good place to to start. Um and then there's, <clears throat> there's a scholar, I believe she teaches at Calvin, maybe, Rebecca Kondyke Kond- oh, yeah. de Young. Mm-hmm. She also has done a lot of writing on Akedia and I find her writing very helpful. So I've been doubting that. Jo- Joseph Pieper is also a scholar that deals right. with... Uh, Joseph Pieper? Joseph Pieper. Joseph, See, the uh, yeah. French. Yeah, the, the Leisure, the basis Leisure. of culture. yeah. yeah. Uh, he has a section in, in that book about Kedia. Yeah, it's so fun talking to you because you read such weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. That's been on my book list for years. For that was actually one that I've encountered at Central Seminary. I, yeah, I have leisure basis
2: of a culture. It's funny. Uh-huh. I asked Dr. Bowder if I wanted Sorry, if I, if I wanted to know about culture. He, he gave me that book as a... We read that, didn't we?
0: We didn't read it, but you own it, do you not?
1: I own it. I read it with some students. So
0: I feel like we... T- I think this is like, you know, if we ever had like a Lost Thinklings episode. Mm-hmm. Like before we recorded, I think that we did talk about this. I think. And then what's the Scruton work that's in the same vein? Am I am I way out in left field here?
2: Just Beauty, at the, I'm not. Maybe sure. Scruton's not the name. I'm Well, he talks for. about leisure some, but maybe I maybe Rodmacher
0: but... is like a Death of a Culture. Rookmacher. 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 How could I forget that? Art Rook?
2: and the Death of a Culture. I think.
0: But yeah, we 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 intersected a lot of this stuff with yeah. that like three three four years ago.
2: Yeah, but. I don't
1: remember much about it. I need to read it again.
2: All right. So we have a question we like to ask our guests. What are your study guilty pleasures? So what we mean by that is like when you study and like you're, you're deep into it. Is it Mountain Dew? Is it coffee? Is it something else? What is it? What are your guilty pleasures studying?
0: Who was the sunflower guy? Dr. Newman,
2: when he wrote his dissertation, he said he ate like a pound of sunflower seeds a weekend. No. It's sad
0: that I can't remember that. No.
2: it's Dr. Newman. And he said it's not a healthy thing he said. Yeah, sure. (laughs) This isn't too radical,
3: but I, uh, chewing gum, I go through, I'll chew something for maybe like five minutes, and then be done with it, and then... An hour later, I'll get another piece and chew it for five or 10 minutes and then be done with it. So I just do that. So I go through packs of gum quite regularly. Do you have a favorite type of gum or just whatever chews? Oh. I used to like this uh, watermelon gum, but it caused my brother-in-law to get a headache and I would chew it around him. And so I just do a regular kind of wintergreen extra or something. Boring.
0: (laughs) So, okay, kind of on that same vein. So what what are you, and, and I mean... As someone who's now teaching, understanding Woo! the breadth of the the work involved in that, we we, we teach, and there's there's th- outside of that. That's not what we're talking about. What are you working on? Like, are there like what 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 are on the what irons do you have in the fire? As far as are you are you reading specifically in a field? I know you mentioned something there. Are you working on writing anything? Like, what what what's kind of in the backdrop of of. Uh, on the back burner
3: I sent out two paper proposals for conferences on American literature in relation to Akedia uh, so that's one of the things in the background um, just in terms of this might be expanding beyond what you're asking but in terms of just hobbies things that I enjoy I really enjoy cycling and running uh-huh. and so I do that most days if I get a chance uh, either go for a run or a, or a bike ride huh um, and I I, I try to ride. Like I, I use it as a means of fitness. It's not like it's not fun. I don't enjoy it, you but I do yourself. enjoy it. It's it's that kind of thing. And I'm not saying anything. Like I'm, I'm not a wonderful cyclist, but I'm always trying to improve.
0: So, really, really weird question about that. Do you find that that helps you in your other pursuits in life? So, like on a day that you do get the the bike ride in, do you see tangible benefits to that? as you teach, as you study, as you read, as you write, and then the the vice versa of that as well.
3: Yeah, I I see exercise as a means of stress relief. Mm. Just getting out and getting away from the desk and books and things like that and just being out and alone and thinking, but not necessarily about academic life, just thinking Mm. about other things and... Do you bike like the High Trestle Trail or? High Trestle Trail, Neil Smith Trail. Oh, yeah. Other trails around town. Like Ankeny's and Des Moines are yeah. wonderful. There's like a super highway system yeah. of bike trails. Cool.
0: Any other final questions or?
2: I don't know if there's any others we
1: have. I think just hit that last one.
0: Yeah. You can do it. Go for it. I'll edit all that out. Maybe. We'll have to leave it in. If you're listening to this, you just heard no. oh, the sausage gets made. So <laughs> all they right. like that. They <laughs> like the nuts and the bolts.
2: So maybe for like the maybe a final question, if it is the final question. Um, if you could go back and, and talk to your younger self, the self that would have been a freshman when I was, when we went to Sadie Hawkins, or you know, all that.
0: Whoa, 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 okay. Time out, time out, time out.
2: Tell me about that. Yeah, we went to we were on a well, you, quadruple date at City Hawkins with her. What was now he wives. like?
0: <laughs> what was he like? What was Andy like?
3: Well, we both uh, were really immature.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Look at how no, he holds include, barred
3: right here. <laughs> and how he included himself in that. No holds
2: barred, Josh.
3: <laughs> I I thought Andy was great. I thought he was hilarious. He was down to earth. And uh Yeah, I don't even know how we Became friends, and then we didn't become not friends, but we just didn't hang out as much. I think it was because you know
2: we had interests. Robin,
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, and he got um, married. Yeah,
2: hmm. Josh Ball uh, just a uh, little bit later. It was Uh-oh.
3: fun. We would give him a hard time about the, That's great. the speed with which
2: he and Robin, hey, were, you know, engaged. I met this girl. I'm like, man, I gotta act fast. She's spring. great. You know, like, I don't want to lose this opportunity here, you know? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. That's right. This summer was, you know, 20 years for us. So that's okay. That's great. Yeah. So, so, okay. So that back in that day. Okay. So if you could go back to Josh back <laughs> then, and you now have all this time eclipse between then and now, and you're looking back at your life. And if you had to say. Like, there's something you're doing now that's really good, really beneficial, and you could go back and tell yourself, start doing this now. What would that thing be?
0: Or, th- or, or things.
2: Yeah, or things. Like, what are some things you do now that you're like, this is really good, I should do this. And you go back and tell your younger self to do it.
3: The difficulty with that question is, do I do these things well now? <laughs> okay, Not necessarily, but I am working on them, and I wish that I had been working on them. A long time ago. Um, Just a quick side note, Josh Gibbs is a classical educator, and he talks about the fact that as a young man, you need to start doing things to prepare for being an an older man. And that doesn't sound profound, but things like as a young man, start giving up your time to serve other people so that when you become married, you already are used to giving your time to other people things like that. And he talks about um, what if you have a desire, wait. (laughs) And so wait on that desire and see what it comes to over time because youth tend to be rash uh, and make decisions based on emotion. So personally, two things that I am working on that I, and that I wish that I had started working on a lot earlier are living a life that is intentional. What, Am I doing? Mm-hmm. Where am I going? Where do I want to be? Um, and really, when I say that, I mean, how can God? What does God want me to be doing right. now? So you're not. God...
1: You're not looking at it from just a human perspective. Right. But what's what's God want me to do? What what's my part in His plan? Sure.
3: Yeah. And then learning patience. Mm. In college, when you're immature, you just want it to be over. And it's really one of the best times of your life. Your mind is a sponge. And if used properly, you can just grow and grow during that time, spiritually, intellectually. But not not having the long game in view, just having the short game in view and just wanting to be done. I regret that. Mm. I love what some of our students are able to do and just taking all kinds of classes here at Faith in different areas to just... Soak up as much as they can and be well-rounded. I wish I had done that. I wish I'd taken Greek in college. I wish I had taken systematic theology with Doctor Hartog. I wish I had done this or that at Central Seminary. I wish I had taken Introduction to Logic with Mark Ruffy. Ooh, mm. I just didn't do those things, you know, because I didn't have the long game in view.
0: Well, m- might I cap that thought off with? I mean, this is this is kind of like heretical for us because we normally end in the word, but this is an interview episode, so maybe bring it full circle and go back to the Iliad and quote, you know, the the comment, like doing things as a young man to prepare yourself for not being a young man, for being an old man, like having the wisdom to see what's coming. And this is uh, Achilles commenting on Agamemnon in, uh, in uh, book one of the Iliad. He's speaking of him and he says, the man is raving with all the murderous fury in his heart. He lacks the sense to see a day behind a day ahead and safeguard the Achaeans battling hmm. by the ships. So he he's so rash and unwise that he's not, he doesn't see what the ramifications of his actions are going to be. And there's going to be a day ahead when he sees what he's doing today and you're like, man, what were you thinking? And uh, so that that's a really good, I, I wish as a college student, like I don't know what I did with my time.
2: This is, it's funny, that's, isn't this very similar to what Doctor Bowder said when we asked him the same question? He said he, he should have gone back and started trying sooner because he just didn't yeah. try, and had he been trying harder, and I would say looking back at my own life, I wished, I wished I'd learned to read well earlier, and like that would have helped. So I think I really appreciate your advice. That's good. When anyone good tells there.
0: me that I'm behind, I tell them a wizard arrives exactly when he intends.
1: <laughs> I'm not saying anything. <laughs>
0: Well, on that note, we'll see you next week on the Thinklings podcast.